0: Amen. You can grab a seat. Welcome to Mariners. So glad you are here today. If you're a guest, thanks for being with us. We're we're honored you chose to worship with us today. My name is Eric. I'm the senior pastor. If we haven't met, so we're going to be at at a really fascinating story that Jesus tells today in Luke chapter 18. You've heard it said before that there's two kinds of people in the world. People say that all the time. There's two kinds of people, and people are always making lists to divide us or to classify humanity. It's based on, you know, what LA sports team you root for or what's your political affiliation. I mean, there's two kinds of people. There's a blog that's very popular online that constantly builds the case that there's two kinds of people in the world, and they do it in this this funny way. So here's a couple of examples. There's two kinds of people in the world, those who set one alarm to wake up and those who require three alarms to wake up. Just own it, just own it. How many of you require three? Just own it, that's good, it's fine. It's a safe place, safe place. There's two kinds of people in the world. Um, those who clean out their inbox and those who have 17,000 messages that they have not yet responded to. Some of you today, you're you're A. I mean, before you come into service, you're cleaning it out. You're, You're that obsessed. And then others of you, B, I don't even know how you sleep at night. I don't know how you sleep with that. There's two kinds of people in the world. those who eat Kit Kats the way the designer intended them to be eaten. You uh, respect the designer. You care about the artwork of the Kit Kat. And then there's monsters. Um, (laughs) B. (laughs) Um, There's two kinds of people in the world. Those who, as you send a text message, you listen to what your mother said. And you think thoughtfully before you send the message. You compose your thoughts before you hit send. And then there's people like Kenton Bishore who just send one message after the other to compose a paragraph. (laughs) So, two kinds of people in the world. Mark Twain, he famously said, there's two kinds of speakers in the world. Those who are nervous and those who are liars. Two kinds of speakers. (laughs) Some comedians have said things like there's two kinds of people in the world. They are the good people and the bad people. And the good people sleep much better at night. And the bad people enjoy the waking hours much more. You know, two kinds of people, good and bad. And really that's how most people think about humanity. In fact, that's even how you grew up thinking about humanity. There was Santa, and he's making a list, and he's checking it twice, and he's going to find out who's naughty and who's nice. There's bad and there's good. Maybe you've thought that's how churches view people. Maybe... Perhaps you have had an experience in the past with church, and you felt like if you do these things, you make the good list. If you do these things, you make the bad list. And the whole point of a church is to try to get people to make the good list. And and so church is people like me yelling at people like you to do things this week, to put yourself on the good list. And that religion is all about trying to be good, that humanity is divided between good and bad. But how does God really view us? As God looks at the 1130 service today at Mariners and he looks at humanity, see, so we believe that God looks at us. He cares for us and he looks into all of our hearts. But how does, he, how does he look at us? Does he divide us into a list of there's the good and there's the bad? Is he like this massive Santa in the sky that is developing a list of the naughty and the nice? How does God look at humanity? In this one story we're going to look at, in Luke chapter 18, you're going to see Jesus define how he looks at us. And it's going to be surprising. It's actually, when he told this story, it was a very scandalous story because the crowd expected Jesus to divide people into there's the bad and there's the good. And Jesus does not divide us that way. He doesn't look at humanity through that lens at all. So a couple of things you want to know before we read this story about the story. Anytime you read a story that Jesus tells, you want to ask yourself a couple of questions. Who's he talking to? And so you'll see that the very first verse we're going to read in verse 9, Jesus is telling this story to a group of people who trust in themselves that they are righteous, which means they think they're good. So he's speaking to a group of people who think they're on the good list. He's speaking to a group of people who think they've made the good side of the ledger before God. And because they trust in themselves that they're righteous, you're going to see this. The verse, the Bible actually says, they look down on everybody else, which always happens. If you believe that you are good for something in life, then you look down on other people who don't do the same thing you do. And this is Jesus speaking to a group of religious people who are trusting themselves, thinking they're good, they're right with God, and therefore they look down on other people because they aren't doing what they think has made them right with God. So that's who he's speaking to. And then anytime you read a story, you always want to know, okay, what's the scene of the story that Jesus is telling? And who are the characters? And so the scene of the story is the temple. I need you to get this because we'll talk about this later in the message. The scene of the story is the temple. So what's the scene of the story? The temple. You got to get that. And then there's two characters in the story. One is a Pharisee and one's a tax collector. So when Jesus starts the story and he says, hey, I'm going to tell you a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, everybody's thinking, yep, it's another story about the good guys and the bad guys. Because in this culture, the culture Jesus is speaking to, the Pharisee was the picture of a good guy. This was the epitome of goodness. A Pharisee was very devout religiously. They fasted twice a week. They prayed. They gave a tenth of everything. They also were highly credible in the culture. Moms wanted their sons to grow up and be Pharisees because they were so respected. And so they're the epitome of good. On the other side of the morality spectrum of the good-bad spectrum in this culture is a tax collector. A tax collector in Jesus' day is known as a traitor and a thief. Now, why? Well, because if you were a tax collector in Jesus' day, if you were a tax collector in the Jewish culture... You didn't work for the Jewish leaders, you worked for Rome, and Rome occupied Jewish territory, so you were a traitor because you worked for the enemy who occupied the land of your people. And the reason you were a traitor is because Rome offered you the opportunity as a tax collector to tax people around you for any amount you deemed fair, and you could line your own pockets as long as you gave a kickback to Rome. So if you're a tax collector, you're betraying your own people and you're doing so to get rich. So you're a thief and you're a traitor. So tax collector, the epitome, the illustration of bad guy. Pharisee, the epitome, the illustration of good guy. So everybody thinks this is where Jesus is going. I have a list. Here's the good people and here's the bad people. But as we see in this story in a moment, he's going to shock them with this story. He's going to blow up their minds. Because they're going to see that he's not looking at humanity through the lens of the good and the bad. So how does he look at us? What's he really looking for? Let's find out. Luke 18. He also told them this parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous... And looked down on everyone else. So if you believe you have done something that makes you right with God, you look down on people who don't do the same thing that you do, and you therefore think they aren't right with God, therefore you look down on them. This is who he's speaking to. And so here's his story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. So he's not praying about God; he's praying about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people—greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified, Rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see how Jesus looks at us? He's not looking for a list of the naughty and the nice, because all of us would be on the naughty list. He doesn't divide humanity with a list of the good and the bad because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and we would be on the bad list. That's not how he's looking today. Even here at this moment, he's not looking at us that way. He's looking at us through this lens. There are the humble who humble themselves and they will be exalted. And there are the proud who exalt themselves and they will be humbled. Jesus looks at us and he looks at all of humanity through this lens. Are you walking in humility before God or are you walking in pride? This is how he looks at us. Today we're talking about pride as we begin a series on the seven deadly sins. I know you're so jacked, like, yes, I've always wanted to study the seven deadly sins my entire life. That's what I wanted to do today. I woke up and said, I want to go to church and study the seven deadly sins. I can't wait. Give it to me, here. Listen, it's an important thing to study. Theologians and scholars for centuries developed this list of the seven deadly sins Because they believe these are, all sin is deadly, but they believe these seven are the ones that really mess up our lives the most. In fact, even people who are not Christians and not religious say of these seven sins, they may refer to them as vices, say of these seven vices, these mess up people's lives. And what we're gonna look at over the next seven weeks is the flip side of the vice, the character attribute we have As we respond to Christ. Now, why are we doing this during this season? We're doing this during this season because Christians historically have used this time, have viewed this season, the season going up to Easter, as a time to honestly look at what we struggle with. But not to do so without hope, but we do it at this time, as we approach Easter, we do so with our eyes focused on what Jesus did for us on the cross, and we do so with the understanding that Jesus has conquered the grave and conquered death, and he rules and reigns. And so he gives us the power not to live in these seven deadly sins, but he gives us the power to live a better way that there is a better way to live. Some Christians have called this season before Easter Lent. Others have called it a journey to Easter. And so that's what, why we're studying this over the next seven weeks. So I want you to, to press in because this is, this is an important time for us as Christians. But pride, why is pride deadly? Well, you know pride's deadly. We, we all have this in common, even if you're not... A Christian, you would say, yeah, pride messes relationships up. You've seen relationships, even in your own life, destroyed because of pride. You, you aren't looking forward tomorrow to hanging out with some people at the office because they're the story toppers that are going to trump whatever you did this week, and They're going to give it a better, they're going to say something better. They're going to they're story top you. We don't enjoy hanging out with prideful people. C.S. Lewis said this, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. That pride messes up the whole trajectory of our life. That pride is deadly. Kendrick Lamar has a song, a whole song about pride. And in that song, he says this. It's a profound lyric. He says, love's going to get you killed, but pride's going to be the death of you, of you and me. What's he saying? I think it's very insightful that you can... Get killed by sacrificing yourself in a loving way for someone else. But pride, pride's the death of you. Pride is how you stop being you. Pride is when you have the image of God destroyed in you. Pride can actually be the death of you. So pride, pride is deadly. Theologians for centuries have said it's actually the father of all sins. So here's what we're going to do in the next couple of moments. We're going to define using the story that Jesus tells because he divides humanity into the humble and the proud. We're going to look at a definition from this story of what pride is and then what humility is. And then we're honestly going to ask ourselves at the end, because I know some of you are skeptical or cynical about this, is humility really the better way to live? I mean, is it really the better way to so let's look at what pride is and what humility is based on what we can learn from Jesus. So here's number one, just two thoughts I want to give you. The first is, here's what pride is according to this passage. Pride is when you look to yourself. It's when you look to yourself. It is when you are fascinated with yourself or when you think you have done things in your own goodness that some way make you right in the world or make you right before God. It's when you think you have done something, you have qualified yourself with your merit or your effort or your intellect that you have qualified yourself and made yourself right before others and right before God. This is who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to people who think they're righteous. Look back at verse 9, and therefore they look down on others. See, anytime you think that you have done something that makes you right before God, that very thing is what's going to cause you to look down on other people. You'll, You'll notice this. When I'm judgmental towards others, and I have been in my life, when I look down on others, and I have. It's because what I'm looking down on them for is the very thing that I think makes me right. Whatever you think makes you right in this world and right before God is the same thing that you look down on other people for. So a couple of examples. If you believe that your behavior is what makes you right before God, like I've done so many good things, therefore I'm right with God, then you're gonna look down on people who don't behave the same way you behave. If you think that your political affiliation is what makes you right before God and right in this world, then you're going to look down on other people who don't view politics the same way you view politics. If you think that your educational preference on how you're going to educate your kids is what makes you right... I educate my kids this way, therefore I'm right and I'm right before God and right in this world, then you're going to look down on other people who don't educate their kids the same way. Whatever it is you look down on other people for gives you a clue on what the source of your pride is, on what you think actually makes you right in this world and right before God. That's this Pharisee. Remember his prayer. We just read it. He's standing there before God and he's saying, I thank you, God, I'm not like other people. He's looking down on people. I'm not like him. I'm not like the tax collector. I'm not like... The adulterer, I'm not like the greedy person. He lists all of these things that he's not, and then he lists all of these things that he does that he thinks makes him right with God. I fast, I pray, I give twice a week. He is believing that there's levels of righteousness in some kind of way, him and his goodness has accomplished the very top level before God. That there's levels of righteousness. Sometimes we've wrongly thought that. That God looks at us, and there's all these levels, and if you do enough good things, you'll get to another level. When I was in third grade, I noticed in my class in elementary school that some of the smart kids in my class got pulled out, and they were put in this new class, and some other kids from another class were pulled out, and all of a sudden this new class formed, and it was the gifted and talented class. And I wasn't included in the gifted and talented class, which meant the rest of us jokers weren't gifted and talented because they were, we weren't at the same level. They were at this other level. They were the gifted and talented class. And I didn't realize this at the time. I have since gone back and read what was taking place in our culture because all of a sudden it felt like gifted and talented was a huge thing at my school where I grew up in the New Orleans area. And in 1983, President Reagan decided that America was falling behind other countries in education. And he, put together a commission that researched what we should do as a country. And the commission came back and said, we need to ramp up gifted and talented education. The thinking was that the best and the brightest were being held back by people like me and we needed to (laughs) quarantine the best and the brightest off, keep them away from people like me who's holding everybody down and educate those people, the best and the brightest. And then they will, you know, sometime kind of way... Um, their intellect will trickle down to the rest of us and they will be, um, you know, they'll they'll elevate us all. So all I know is I'm in third grade and the kids whose papers I used to look over, they're in another class all of a sudden. (laughs) And it's called gifted and talented and I'm not. I'm not at that level. I'm not gifted. I'm not talented. And we, you know, they were doing all these fun trips. They were going on field trips and all these hands-on projects. And I'm sitting there with the rest of us and working with a Scantron and number two pencil, sitting next to a kid who's eating his boogers. I mean, that was what I was <laughs> doing. So I went to my mom one day and I'm like, "Mom, I, I want to get in that class. I want to get in the gifted and talented class." And and some of you, um, in some of you perhaps uh, have had a mom like this. My mom called the school. I want my son to take the test. And so. <laughs> My, uh, I, I got to take the test, the gifted and talented test To see if I could get to that level If I could level up, you know If I could get into gifted and talented I took the test, thought boom man, I crushed it, I nailed it I'm going to be in gifted and talented A couple of days later my mom comes into my room And she says I just want you to know I love you no matter what <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't have to be in gifted and talented to know that, that meant I wasn't getting in Gifted and Talented. She said, listen, it's fine. It's totally fine. You're going to love working for these kids one day. Everything's, <laughs> everything's fine. Everything's fine. So I didn't make it in. And, and it's fine. I've forgiven you who were in Gifted and Talented. Some told me after, so I was in Gifted and Talented. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you. And there's nothing wrong with that in the uh, public school system. Nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem is that thinking has sometimes made its way into how we think about Christians and how we think about church. That we can sometimes think that there's these levels of righteousness. And the longer you're a Christian, if you do the right things, if you um, go through enough Bible studies, if you go on enough faith adventures, if you do enough nice things for people, that you will, some kind of way, climb the ladder of righteousness. But we we must not think about the Christian faith that way at all. Because understand that the Scripture says there is no one righteous, no, not one. And any righteousness we have is not righteousness we've achieved. It's only righteousness we've received by our good and gracious God who freely gives us his forgiveness and freely gives us his righteousness. We are only righteous because of his grace and his mercy, not because of anything we've done. Therefore, we can't look down. We must not look down on anyone else because we haven't done anything to cause ourselves to stand right before God. We've only received what he's done for us. And when we understand that we've received his grace, we can walk in humility. When we're looking down on others, we aren't looking at him. But when we look at him, we remember that we've only received what we've gotten. So number one, pride is looking at yourself. Here's number two. Humility is the flip side. Humility is looking at the sacrifice. Now, notice in the story that Jesus tells that the tax collector, he prays a completely different prayer. The Pharisee is bragging about himself, essentially giving his spiritual resume to God. And the tax collector prays very different. The the verse says that he stands a long way off. So the Pharisee is at the most holy place in the temple. He's trying to get as close as he can to the most holy place. The tax collector is way far away. And God regards the tax collector who's far away. God regards him as near. And he regards the Pharisee who's up close as far away. And the tax collector doesn't compare himself to others. He doesn't look at others. He looks to the sacrifice. Now I want you to see one phrase if you have your Bible or your listening guide, look at this one phrase, God have mercy on me. In the original language, this is one word. Your translation might read, God, turn your wrath from me. It's one word in the original language, meaning the, the, the New Testament was written in Greek, this is one word. It's the word halaskome. You're like, why why do I need to know that? I just want you to know it. Just humor me for a moment. I want you to know it because it's so beautiful. Because the word is, God, please turn your wrath from me. I know because of my struggles and my sin, because you're holy, because you're righteous, that my sin deserves to be punished. And I'm asking God that you not... Turn your wrath to me, but please turn your wrath away from me. Turn your wrath to something else. Now, where is the story that Jesus, what's the scene? The temple. In the temple, every single day at this point in history, this is before Christ died, there were sacrifices that took place every day. Why? Because God's people sinned every day, just like we still do. There were sacrifices every single day. And so here's the sacrifice taking place in the temple. The priest is grabbing a goat or a lamb or a bull and is slaughtering the goat or lamb or the bull. And a tax collector is watching the sacrifice happen. And the tax collector is saying, God, have mercy on me. God, turn your wrath from me. He is saying, the tax collector is saying, God, Please don't allow me to suffer the wrath for my struggles. I've been a tax collector. I have stolen. I've been a thief. I've been untrustworthy. I've betrayed my people. But please don't allow your wrath to be on me. Turn your wrath from me. Let that sacrifice, God, bear the weight of my sin. Turn your wrath from me. This tax collector looks to the sacrifice. And humility for us is the same thing. We look to Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice who takes away all of our sin. So God's anger isn't against us. For those of us who've trusted Christ, God's anger is not against you because all of God's anger and all of God's wrath was absorbed in the body of Jesus on the cross when he died for you and he yelled out, it is finished. All of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. So there's no wrath left for you. This is the good news. God's mercy and grace is for you. And this is the tax collector in Jesus' story is getting this. God, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, he goes home justified. This was the shocking part of the story. Everybody who's listening to the story, okay, sinner and tax, I mean, a tax collector and a Pharisee, the Pharisee goes home happy, the Pharisee goes home justified, the Pharisee goes home with everything right, everything is great for the Pharisee, Jesus says The tax collector goes home justified, scandalous. The tax collector, the tax collector goes home justified. Because the tax collector didn't look at himself and didn't compare himself with others. The tax collector looked to the sacrifice and he goes home justified. That word, there's two parts of that word. It means he goes home and all of his sins are gone, but he also goes home and all of the perfection of God is given over to him. So he goes home like he's never stolen, but also like he's always been generous. He goes home like he's never lied, but also just as if he's always told the truth. He goes home just as if, he's never disobeyed God, but he also goes home just as if he's always obeyed God. He goes home justified, happy, at peace, at rest, not because he looked to himself, but because he looked to the sacrifice. Humility, the flip side of pride, is when you look to the sacrifice. Now, but the question is, as we wrap up, because some of you are cynical towards this and I get it. All right, Eric, I understand that the Christian faith would say pride is a sin and humility is the way to go, but is that really a better way to live? I mean, what about, what about a healthy self-esteem? Is it really a better way to live to be humble? I mean, what about um, having a healthy view of myself it sounds like humility, according to this story, would be, I would feel so low about myself. Is this really a better way to live? Is humility really a better way to live? So you first have to understand what humility is. Tim Keller, in his very helpful book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he builds the case that for centuries, many thinkers believed that the problem that faced us, that plagued us, was humanity had too high a view of itself, that people were always thinking too highly of themselves. And so the thinking was, um, the reason we have problems is that people are, have too high a self-esteem. And then in recent years, and you've seen this in the U.S., this is particularly true in the West, the view in the last several decades is the reason we have so many social problems is people have too low a view of themselves. Which then birthed the modern self esteem movement, which some of you grew up in. You know, your your parents read a book and they they've been telling you your whole life how amazing you are, and the and everyone in, in your on your team in in um, fourth grade, even though you were 0 and 9, everybody got a trophy and was told how awesome you were. I mean, the whole because the thinking was the reason that people are struggling, the reason that people abuse their spouse or that they're murderers or that they steal is they just think lowly of themselves. And so we need to help people think more highly of themselves. And so here I am saying the Scripture is saying the better way to live is to be Humble. Well, psychologists in recent years have actually admitted, many have actually admitted that the whole self-esteem movement has been a failure. Lauren Slater, for example, she's a psychologist, and she wrote this groundbreaking article in the New York Times called The Problem with Self-Esteem. And here's what she said. People with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. And feeling bad about yourself is not the cause of our country's most expensive social problems. Another psychologist, his name is Roy Baumeister. he developed a self-esteem scale where people grade themselves based on how they feel about themselves. And he researched rapists and murderers and abusers and found that they actually, many of them have a very high self-esteem. That the problem that we face isn't that people have too low a self-esteem. So what is humility? Eric, are you saying I should have low self-esteem? No, I'm not saying you should have low self-esteem, nor am I preaching high self-esteem. This is the beauty of humility. Humility is neither telling yourself how amazing you are, but nor is it telling yourself how horrible you are. A humble person is not someone who walks around to all of his friends or her friends and says, gosh, nobody likes me. I'm a horrible person. I'm so terrible. I'm not doing anything right. Um, I can't get anything right at work. I'm not doing well in relationships. I'm just just such a horrible person because that person is still speaking about himself, herself. That person is still focused on themselves. Humility is is neither self-exaltation or self-debasement. Humility is the joy and the freedom of not being preoccupied with yourself. It's the joy. It's neither self-glorification or self-humiliation. It's the freedom of not living your life with you at the center It's the freedom of not living your life Preoccupied with yourself It's the joy of not being obsessed with yourself Humility is forgetting about yourself Fasting from yourself It's neither high self-esteem nor low self-esteem It is an accurate understanding of who you are Because you aren't looking at yourself You're looking at your sacrifice You aren't thinking I need to worry what everyone else says about me, or I need to be sure I say the right things to myself. Instead of thinking that way, you're looking at your sacrifice and remembering what's your sacrifice, what your Savior has already declared over you. Some scholars and theologians have defined humility this way. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not being consumed with yourself. All right, but how does this work in real life? Let me close with this. And I want to live this way, and I have to be honest, I fail to live this way so many times. Paul, the apostle, he wrote this about his approach to life, and I want to live like this. This would be humility. This would be the joy of not being consumed with what others say of you or what you say of you. This would be the joy of self-forgetfulness. The Apostle Paul wrote this. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Now, that's, that's liberty right there. To show up at work tomorrow. Now I'm not saying you should show up and like say that to people, you know. <laughs> like, I don't care what you think about me. I mean, I'm not saying you should do that. But what a, what a free way to live. You walk into work tomorrow, you walk into school tomorrow, and you walk in with a mindset of, I'm not finding who I am based on what these people think of me or say of me. I I, I want that. But then he says something next. He, He also says, but it's neither what I say about me. Notice what he says next. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. He says, I don't know of anything against me. I don't know of anything against me, but that's not what justifies me. Same word, justifies. What justifies me isn't what you say about me. What justifies me isn't what I say about myself. What justifies me is I look at my sacrifice, Jesus, and he has declared me to be right with God. My sacrifice, Jesus, is the one who gives me my worth. My sacrifice, Jesus, is the one who gives me my life. That's where I look. And when I look at him, I'm not concerned what others say about me. I'm not even really concerned about what I say about myself. You want to live that way? I want to live that way. But I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. Understand, this is why you look to Jesus. Because if you are his, if you're a Christian, he looks at you and he says, she is right with me. She's right with me. She's justified because of what I did for her and she looked to me, and she received my forgiveness. He, he's justified. He's justified. He's looking to me, and he's received my forgiveness. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those of us who walk in humility, and we look at our sacrifice, Jesus, and those of us who walk in pride, and we look at ourselves. Which kind of person do you want to be? Let's look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's stand and we're going to sing this song that we look to him. We look to Jesus. So I'm excited, really excited about these next seven weeks as we look to him together. A couple of things I want you to know as we leave to really help you on this journey to Easter. This Wednesday, we have an Ash Wednesday service and it's going to be at noon and also at 6 p.m. right here in the worship center. I'm going to be teaching alongside Inez Franklin. And this really kicks off historically the 40 days before Easter. And we're going to look at our struggle, but also start to look towards our sacrifice, Jesus We have connect groups, which if you're not yet in a group or your group's not currently meeting, these groups are only going to last seven weeks long. And if you end up loving the group, you can keep meeting as a group, but they're a seven-week long sprint of a group. And you're going to study the same content that we're studying here. So the same topics. So if you are not in a group, right through the doors in the back, you can go out to the patio and get connected to um, one of these connect groups. And then we also have Journey to Easter Devotionals. So you can go to the website and sign up for these devotionals that will email you every single day. So these next seven weeks, we're we're trying, I mean, it's going to be up to you to press in, but we're trying to make it super easy for you to get connected in multiple ways to really make the most of your spiritual growth during this season. We also have this for you in the bulletin that really maps out what the next seven weeks are going to look like. And so I hope you'll press in during this time. If there's anything going on in your life that we can pray with you about, we have a team of people right over there by those lights. They would love to pray with you. If your need today is prayer for healing, we have an elder prayer room. And to get to our elder prayer room, you go through the doors in the back and you take a right. Why don't you open your hands and let me pray a prayer of blessing over you. Father, I pray now for your sons, for your daughters, with their hands extended to you, Their hands extended to you are just a symbol of a posture of humility. That we, with open hands, realize we have nothing to offer you, but we are ready to receive from you. So I pray for your sons and daughters this week that you would bless them. That you would press close to them and take note of them. That you would walk closely with them. That you would provide for them. I pray this week that they would sense the joy of looking at you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.